This is John DeFalb at John Sandoz Bookshop in Chelsea, London. At this moment of renewed COVID anxieties, it gives me particular pleasure to present a podcast with that remarkable force of energy, intellectual life and hope that is Tom Stoppard. While he has been buying books from us in some quantity for about 30 years, the impetus for this occasion is the publication of Hermione Lee's splendid new biography of him. Before proceeding with Tom, we have a short introduction from her. Hello, my name's Hermione Lee. I'm very pleased to be making this podcast for John Sando Books because the bookshop was an important part of my life when I was growing up in London. Um, My mother used to go there all the time. uh, And I know it's been an important bookshop for Tom Stoppard too. I've just published my biography of Stoppard. Um, It's been a new experience for me working on a living subject uh, and it's had its comical moments uh, sitting with me for an interview in New York a few years ago while I was in the middle of this work. Stoppard turned to the audience before I'd got my first question out and he said genially, you know the writer who says biography adds a new terror to death? Well, here she is. However, the work has progressed without undue terror on either side, at least I think so. Stoppard's not been like Beckett, who told his first biographer, I will neither help nor hinder. Uh, He he asked me to write the book and then he made it clear that I was on my own, but that he would help me as much as he could with conversations and contacts and materials. And he did this very generously. I think he was intrigued by the whole process. Uh, He said to me at one point that it must be like making an ordnance survey map and a plan of the house and a map of the world. I had the great good luck to see and make use of a lot of manuscripts and letters and journals and photographs, which aren't yet part of his huge, impeccably catalogued archive in the Harry Ransom Centre at Austin, Texas. His letters to his mother, written weekly to her from the late 1940s till she died in 1996, were a particularly valuable resource. But it's a complicated thing, uh, writing the biography of a living person, because the archive, of course, is poised between being a, a paper archive and a virtual archive. And there are lots of letters belonging to people he's written to over the years, which I would never see. Um, It may be that in years to come, there'll be people who will have the advantage of seeing such letters in archives, but they won't have had the advantage of of talking to him. Um, I've I've had um, one extraordinary uh, form of access, which has been watching him occasionally in rehearsals. Uh, When he talks about his work, Stoppard frequently describes himself as an empiricist or a brazen pragmatist. He insists on the fact that a play isn't something that's set in stone, but is changed by what happens to it in rehearsal and performance. And I've seen that at work, perhaps most interestingly, in the David Laveau Old Vic revival, 50th anniversary revival of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern um, in 2017. Uh, It was extraordinary to see Stoppard sitting in the rehearsal room giving advice and suggestions, even doing little bits of rewrite to a group of actors who on the whole weren't born when the first production of this play was put on. One of the jobs of the biographer is to follow in the footsteps of their subject. So 
Uh, for instance, I've been to Zlin, where he was born in 1937, and seen the hospital where he was born and the house he spent his first years in. And I've been to Darjeeling, uh, where he was at school after his mother had fled uh, from Singapore, where his father was killed when the Japanese invaded, and she made her life in India for a few years before remarrying and, and going to England with her new husband. Stoppard's often mentioned a moment when he was six or seven at Mount Hermon School in Darjeeling, when in spite of all the upheavals in his young life, he was walking down the school corridor, running his finger along the dividing rail in the middle of the wall and feeling a sense of perfect happiness and security. And so I went back to visit the school. There was the building, there was the corridor, there was the rail, and I ran my finger along the rail too and it felt very like a image of what biography and a biographer should be doing. Thank you very much. Now Tom, welcome aboard. Um, I don't want particularly to proceed with a, um, the chronology of your life. It must be quite strange to be the subject of such a comprehensive account. Um, but I can't resist beginning with her reference to Darjeeling because it so happens that in March I was there with my wife, Bujum, and we were talking about that this morning and she reminded me about seeing a boy, a Hindu boy with his mother, I think, being taken to a Buddhist shrine and blessed by a t apparently Tibetan monk with a book being laid on his head. And the image came to me that this was you. And I wondered to what extent you feel that that Darjeeling existence lingers in your imaginative world. Lingers almost this day in my dreams as well as my imagination. Um, for years and years and years, I dreamed about Darjeeling. Um, I was at boarding school just outside the town um, and my mother worked, uh, she was the manager of the Batya shoe shop uh, at the bottom of the main street. Um, I like the idea of being blessed by having a book placed on one's head, I think you said. Um, I can't say it that happened to me, except, as it were, metaphorically. Um, Darjeeling, um, I, don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever written, uh, as it were, creatively about Darjeeling. Um, uh, I went back to Darjeeling um, and wrote about the experience of returning there. Um, but... It, until I actually came to England when I was eight, Darjeeling was the main event of my life, if you can call it an event. I was there for, I think, a couple of years because we were in other parts of India before that. And um, Hermione mentioned a day when I felt particularly happy. What I meant was that wherever I looked, nothing was wrong. Um, <laughs> and that, of course, isn't 
you know, the, the memory is, is true. It's not a false memory. I'd forgotten that I'd told Hermione about it, right. but yeah. the moment itself, I, I find unforgettable. Um, one of the most striking things in this account of your life is not that you've written a lot of rather remarkable plays and so forth, but how extraordinarily busy you've always been. And it led me to wonder, when I see you buying books, when on earth do you read them? And it's, uh, there's a trivial aspect to the question, but I, I mean it seriously. How do you read? Tell me about your way in which you read. As regards my life latterly, I can answer you quite precisely. I read before I go to sleep, but I read for longer than most people might read. I, um, I tend to put the light out about one o'clock, uh, sometimes two o'clock. I read nothing during the day except uh, periodicals in newspapers. But when I get into bed, uh, I have a book and I read it till I go to sleep. And that way, um, you know, a moderate size of book would last me a week. I, I, might, I might read four, 40 pages, 50 pages a night. And that's, and that's how I do my reading. Do you annotate? Um, I don't. I often wish I um, had the thought of reading with a pencil in my hand um, so that I can disagree with the book I'm reading uh, on occasion. Um, but I don't annotate. Um, I get, I get uh, as the phrase goes, I get blown away by a good book quite easily. Um, I come to the end of a, of a good book um, for quite, you know, for days afterwards, maybe weeks afterwards, I think of that book as being one of the best books I've read. Then, like all the others, um, its impact lessons. Um, and occasionally, I find myself reading a thoroughly bad book, and sometimes I continue because I'm mesmerized by how yeah. incompetent it is. <laughs> but generally... Um, one can have also a bad book, which has a value in it for informative purposes or negative purposes, I suppose? Even informative, so. perhaps. Um, I, don't, I don't think it adds value, it adds experience. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I've, got a, I've got a feeling you might ask me what I've been reading recently, and, I, and my short-term memory is a bit alarming. Um, but uh, I read probably non-fiction more than fiction. Um, I read the novels uh, written by novelists whom I know as friends or acquaintances. Um, and I read poetry. Mm. And what I, what, I, what I read during the day, some, some, some significant part of my daytime reading consists of reading book reviews. I have a, a kind of addiction to book reviews. I turn to the book pages 
sometimes before I see anything else in a newspaper or a magazine. So I have a pretty good idea of what's out there, of what is being published. Um, and um, in many cases, I'm the ideal reader, I think. I'm the kind of person who will buy a book because of a review I've read. Yeah. Are, are you conscious of reading for pleasure or for work? Do you make that distinction particularly? I don't actually, because, um, you know, on the whole, I've, I've been fortunate enough not to have to undertake any particular work which doesn't interest me sometimes deeply. So reading for work and reading for pleasure are indistinguishable in my case. Um, certainly, what I mean by that is that um, I, do, I do read books which don't impinge on my work uh, very often, but re reading books which are connected with the work I'm doing at any given time, that is itself a pleasure. But once I've done the play, um, I don't really continue down that furrow. I tend to stop and put everything aside. And um, the next time I wake up, as it were, I'm in the middle of reading about a different subject altogether. And I have a whole new set of London Library and Sando books yeah. at my elbow. It sounds very, um, it must be confusing sometimes. Um, um, re reverting to Coast of Utopia, I remember finding what was held to be an intellectual or historical sequence of plays intensely moving for the conflict, the sustained conflict between the characters' ideas, ideals, and their emotional lives, the worldly and the personal. And this seems to be a theme running through all your work, the turbulence between the, um, the intellectual or the idea of the, the, the world can be ordered by rational thought and, if you like, the forces, not of irrational but supra-rational perhaps. Um, and that... Um, where they meet is uh, where emotion arises in your work, it sometimes seems to me. Well, um, I, I, uh, I used or perhaps borrowed a phrase many years ago, which is the effect that very often um, public postures are the displacement of uh, the emotional inner life of some particular person that um, I'm going carefully now because I'm not sure, you know, I'm very often not sure if what I'm saying is something I would subscribe to wholly. But yeah. I think that, that one's emotional consciousness um, very often 
affects the public postures that one adopts. Um, in any event, uh, the idea that um, an intellectual life can be conducted uh, separately from one's emotional life, that seems quite a difficult thing to achieve. I'm not even sure if it's, if it's um, something that you should aim for. Well, it's something. Yeah, desirable, no. Um, you used perhaps to be thought of as a non-political playwright or a, um, but it, looking at your work as a whole and a lot of your non-playwright work, in, in retrospect, you seem quite political in a broad, in the broadest way. Um, the thing is, Johnny, that um, when I started off, I was very ignorant about politics and uh, I didn't know enough to test my own um, prejudices or biases or my, my own disposition. Um, I probably became less frightened of, as it were, coming out on some political social issue. But um, this is this kind of talk is all uh, rather retroactive because really I think of the theatre as being a storytelling art form and having a story to tell seems infinitely more important than contriving a story to embody some form of editorial. Mm. Um, Hermione talks about a lecture you did, the Isaiah Berlin lecture, and she quotes um, a remark from that about inspiration. I think I think it's from that. Anyway, it's around about that context, um, where you say as an as an excitation of neurons. Um, as an account of inspiration, it does seem incomplete. And in, you add, or perhaps again it's clipping something else to it, our heart belongs to the outsiders, to the ruffians on the stair. And that connects perhaps to the story. Yeah. I remember the reference to the ruffian on the stair. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, th I think that... Um, I'd forgotten that, and I think it's it's quite a good image actually for me that um, one on a, on on a conscious level, one is trying to uh, stay in control of the, the material, in control of your characters, and so on, so that um, what you're writing is coherent and psychologically consistent and so on. At the same time, there's something which saves the work and something is subversive. Um, in art, it's that subversive part of your mind which um, lifts what you're writing 
out of what I, I don't mean to be rude about it, but I, I was going to say out of the commonplace of getting your facts right. Yeah. Um, in your multiple pursuits of um, wanting to know, it's taken you down many, many uh, avenues. But so far as I'm aware, yes. you, you haven't ever pursued Freud anyway, not in your plays. Does he interest you? Because you seem, you're so interested in the psychology and in the spirit, but you... I'm afraid not. Um, I'm, I'm a bit Nabokovian uh, about Freud. Um, and I don't know whether uh, I, I'm adverting my gaze or whether I've come to a respectably intellectual conclusion but um, I've never been in I've never been able to get interested in uh, the unconscious and subconscious and I'm not even saying because I don't know uh, how much substance there is to the various Freudian theses um, but for reasons which I've never examined and probably wouldn't be able to examine, I've never actually got excited about them in any way. Mm. And on the whole, um, I'm skeptical. Um, an another avenue, which again, I'm not aware that you've gone into in your work, but brings us back full circle is um, bringing back to the the boy on the at the Buddhist shrine, the Hindu boy at the Buddhist shrine, that the multiplicity that one comes across in somewhere like Darjeeling, with an animist shrine a hundred yards from a Buddhist and a Hindu and so forth, this um, extraordinary. Richness of the spirit that one encounters there. Um, again, it made me, in a funny way, think of your work, where so many influences come together, and um, but you don't directly talk about religion, so far as I know, in your work. And I wonder if you have anything to say about that. And again, thinking about that boy with a book on his head. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I think um, I've, I've never been interested enough to write about um, the structures of organized religion and faith in, uh, in a kind of institutionalized sense. Um, but at the same time, I, I do feel that I'm constantly interested um, by the substructure which accounts for religion. Um, I, I do feel interested in the mystery of life. Uh, and one can get very interested by that without becoming particularly interested in the way that um, the mystery is adumbrated in various religions. 
but on the whole, I think you're quite right. I, I, I haven't and don't feel I've had much of an impulse to write about religion in an objective way. Um, I think at that point, I think I should release you, Tom, from... Um, Very nice to see you and talk to you. Yeah. I look forward to getting many more Sandoz books, but even more, I look forward to walking in there. Yes. And I haven't been in London since March. No. Well, it must be terribly strange for you. Well, I'm lucky because, you know, I had some work to do. I'm in the country and I haven't had any desire to go to London. I wish I could parachute into <laughs> your shop and out again, but I'm still waiting. At that point, Tom, I think I should release you and thank you for patiently answering my questions, which were more faltering than they might have been because of a dodgy internet connection. Um, you've been very kind and I hope everybody has enjoyed listening to this. I should add that Leopoldstadt, the play that was closed because of coronavirus earlier this year, um, is available in its normal Faber edition and we've got one or two limited editions signed by Tom available as well if you'd like to contact us. Meanwhile, we look forward very much to seeing you again in the shop, Tom, after the terrible lockdowns and all that are finished. Thank you very much. Thank you.